So I don't know what you all's practices for Lent in terms of giving up are um, in the Mennonite church. Like I said, my own tradition is um, the Presbyterian church. And in our in our tradition, it seems like it's a bit of an anything goes kind of thing um, for Lenten practices in terms of, um, especially in terms of what you give up for Lent. Um, there's, you know, long been a trend of people giving up various foods for Lent. Maybe it came out of the Catholic tradition of giving up um, meat or at least non-fish meat on Fridays for Lent. Um, or maybe that came out of somewhere else. Um, and then, you know, for a long time I've been hearing of people giving up alcohol or soda, chocolate or sweets. Sweets seems to be a common one that people give up. Now, I don't know what you all have heard of people giving up lately, but for me, more and more lately, I've heard of people giving things up like gluten or social media or online dating. There's all sorts of creative things that people are giving up for Lent that I've heard of recently. My understanding of the idea of giving things up for Lent is that giving these things up helps us to focus on our, more on our faith, more on the things that we have attachments to. It helps us to become more aware of what things we have either physical addictions or attachments to or emotional addictions or attachments to. Now, while giving up any of these things, social media or online dating or gluten, um, any of these things may help people to readjust their priorities or maybe even be a little healthier. I can't help but wonder sometimes what these have to do with some of the deeper societal sins, some of the injustices in the world. I can't help but wonder sometimes if these practices have just become way too individualistic, too far removed from what God would really want us to give up for Lent. I've been wondering a lot lately if we sacrifice some of these things we give up for Lent, we sacrifice our only really for our own gain. And I've been wondering what Lenten giving up practices look like through the lens of social injustices. What does giving up mean for people who have already been forced by other people to give up so much already? What does it mean for people that can't really give up more. Although our biblical characters of Sarai and Abram and Hagar in our story, they don't practice Lent, um, Hagar is one of those people that I'm talking about, one of those people who has already been forced to give up so much. And yet, again, in our story this morning, she's expected to give up even more. There doesn't seem to be much justice for Hagar in the story. The biblical story of Hagar is a kind of journey story, you could say, but not the kind of roses and warm fuzzies kind of journey. This is one of those Bible stories we often sanitize when we tell it in the church. Or maybe we even try to find excuses for Sarai and Abram, try to understand where they're coming from or justify their actions. We try to find ways to justify the violence that they inflicted on Hagar. Like history books, the Bible is usually written by the victors, by the winners, and this is especially one of those stories. Hagar was likely a dark-skinned African woman. She was probably captured from Nubia and then brought to Egypt um, to be one of the Pharaoh's um, servants. Some people also thought maybe she was Pharaoh's daughters, 
but it's more likely that she was captured as a slave in Nubia and brought over. Then she became Sarai's slave when the Pharaoh gave Hagar to Sarah and Abraham, Abraham when they were in Egypt. Sarai, likely having medium-toned medium skin or darker, was probably lighter than, than Hagar. Sarai and Hagar seem to have a complicated relationship. Some scholars have said that there was rivalry between Hagar and Sarai, um, but to me that doesn't really convey that there are inherent power issues between Hagar and Sarai. There's inherent power issues between a master or a mistress and a slave. So there really was not equality between Sarai and Hagar, or between Abram and Hagar for that matter. So for this reason, feminist theologians like Phyllis Tribble, she calls this scripture one of the texts of terror. It's a text of terror because there seems to be no justice or redress for Hagar, for the female victim, from the powers that oppress her. There are also clear examples of not only systemic violence and abuse, but individual acts of violence and hatred against Hagar from Sarai and Abram. Phyllis Tribble feels like this story contrasts a clear picture of a liberating God from the Exodus stories, a God who sides with and liberates the, the oppressed. And so it's hard to know what to make of stories like this in the Bible. Here's how the story goes, and just to warn you, this is the unsanitized version. So Hagar was traveling with Sarai and Abram as they had just arrived in Canaan. They've been there about 10 years, our scripture tells us. And in the chapter before this, God had, blessed, had promised to bless Abram and give him as many offspring as there were stars in the sky. But Sarai seems to be infertile. In order for Abram to be able to do this, enable for him to be able to father children, Sarai tells him to essentially rape her slave, Hagar. Scripture calls it go into, but that's what it really means. Is he had sex with her, that he raped her, probably. It was probably against her will. Sarai also gave her to her husband as a wife. She was his concubine. Sarai seemed to do this out of her lack of trust that God actually would fulfill this promise to bless her and Abram with many descendants, that God actually would follow through. So then Hagar becomes pregnant, of course, and she was forced to be a surrogate against her will. Maybe Hagar realized the superiority of her position, that she would give birth to the firstborn son, which is traditionally the heir. Then Hagar gets mad at Sarai. She realized the request came from her. The scripture version we read today says, she looked with disdain on Sarai. The Hebrew word here that's translated as looking with disdain can also mean to be held in low esteem, to be viewed as a being of little account. It's as if Sarai saw Hagar as small and insignificant, as nothing, as worthless. Then Sarai blamed Abram, even though he did what she asked him to do. Then Sarai treated Hagar so badly that she ran away. We don't know exactly what so badly means, but it's the same word to describe the oppressions that the Israelites later experienced as slaves in Egypt. The same kind of hatred and oppression. Sarai essentially cast away Hagar because of how badly she was treating her. 
So then Hagar ran away and found rest at a spring in the desert, and there she encountered an angel of God who told her to name her son Ishmael. Then this angel told her to return to the abusive situation that she was experiencing. So that's the first part of our reading today. Now let's fast forward to chapter 21. Sarai has become Sarah. Abram has become Abraham. So Sarah did indeed become pregnant, although she did not think that she would, and she gave birth to Isaac. So that's happened by this point in the story. One day Sarah thought that Hagar's son Ishmael who was a little bit older than Isaac, was playing unfairly with Isaac. We don't know exactly what was going on. Then Sarah, Sarah complained to Abraham, probably, and she was, she was afraid that Ishmael would be a threat to Isaac, um, especially for the birthright blessing. Instead of realizing that, oh, that's just what kids sometimes do. Kids will mess with each other and play around. Instead of doing that, um, Sarai, Sarah um, blamed Abraham. And she, sorry, she blamed Hagar, and then she brought it to Abraham's attention. So then Abraham sent Hagar away with, with Ishmael with very, very little water and food, which, you know, wasn't enough to live on for very long. They wandered in the desert for a while, and then they were afraid that they would die, which is what happens to people when they're in the wilderness, when they're in the desert. So at that point, say, Hagar sat the boy down away from her because she was pretty sure they were going to die pretty soon and she couldn't bear to see him die. Then she began to cry as does Ishmael and then God heard their cries and God sustained both of them in the wilderness. They said God was with Ishmael as he grew up and he grew strong and he grew capable and his mother Hagar found him a wife from Egypt so that he could grow his own family so that he could have his own line, his own descendants. Then after Sarai, Sarah died, Hagar returned to Abraham um, to be his wife again, and she, she, born, she bore him more children again at that point. She was still bound to him by marriage and by the bonds of slavery. So, you know, I, I was thinking when I, Hillary and I were talking about which journey stories to um, to go from during this series. I, I love this story, but every time I try to preach it, I think, why did I choose this story to preach on? This is one of the hardest, hardest stories in the entire Bible. Um, but I think it's an important message to us, and especially during Lent. It's a story that's full of some really tough stuff. It's full of slavery and rape and racism and emotional abuse and probably physical abuse too. So for that reason, it's been called a text of terror, like I said, um, especially for people of color, especially people for whom their ancestors were slaves. This scripture has been used to continue to silence and oppress the Hagars of today and throughout history, people of color throughout history. White feminist scholar Jamie Reeves talks about how, as she reads this story, she wants to side with Hagar in this story. As a, as a progressive scholar, she wants to side, side with Hagar and say that she is like Hagar in this story. But then when she's really honest with herself, she has to admit that she's actually a lot more like Sarai, Sarah, in the way that she functions in the world as a white woman. 
Reeves's reflection really resonated with me because when I'm being truly honest, I have to acknowledge and admit that I live with privilege that others do not have simply by being a white woman. I am more like Sarah in this story. So like I said, the scripture has been used to justify slavery. It's been used to condemn slaves who fought for greater freedom throughout the years. Um, a couple different scholars, Marianne Taylor and Heather Weir, um, they collected some interpretations from white women from the 19th century who were reading the story and offering interpretations of it. And, and especially the story in the relationship between um, Sarah, the lighter-skinned woman, and Hagar. And these writings are very clear examples of how white people use scriptures like these to defend the status quo and defend slavery and to oppress people of color in systemic ways. This is what one of these women wrote. The words of the angel are quite sufficient proof that Hagar had been wrong and Sarai's chastisement just or he would not have commanded her, he, speaking of God, as Sarai's bondwoman, to return and submit herself to her mistress's power without any reservation whatever. It must indeed have been a bitterly painful disappointment to Sarai that instead of receiving increased gratitude and affection from one whom she had so raised and cherished, she was despised as an insolent that, unless checked, might bring discord and misery into a household which had before been so blessed with peace and love. Even the famous writer Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, even her, she wrote in her 1877 book, Footsteps of the Master, she wrote this about Hagar's behavior, that the fiery indomitable passions of the slave woman that again break forth and threaten the peace of the home. So many of these writings, you could say they're a product of their time, right? But these have influenced our society even today. Many of these writings conclude that Hagar ought to have returned to Sarai because it was wrong to challenge and question one's social status in life, even if you were a slave. The dominant, generally white, perspective has been to side with Sarai and Abram, Sarah and Abraham, in this story. But many black American feminist and woman, womanist, um, African-American feminist writers um, have fought back against this. Writers like Renita Weems and Dolores Williams, um, William, Wilma Bailey, um, they've tried to highlight Hagar's perspective as a woman of color. These little theologians, as well as some male theologians of color, have compared Hagar's story to that of African-American slaves. Womanist scholars talk about how Hagar was not only oppressed by the patriarchy, which was so prevalent during those days, but how she was also oppressed as a woman of color and a slave. Now, I don't know about you all and what you think when you read this story, but I have always wondered what Hagar would say if she told her story about everything that happened to her at the hands of Sarai and Abram. Like many women today, especially women of color who still fight against the effects of slavery in the US, Hagar's voice and experience has been silenced over the years. What would Hagar say if she spoke to us freely without any kind of restrictions or fear of repercussions? 
what would she say? Would her story be like the testimony of some of the women from the Me Too movement? Women who were assaulted, raped, sexually abused. Would her story be like the female slaves of antebellum America who were raped by their white owners? Would her perspective be like many women of color today who feel buried by systemic racism, feeling like they have no way to get ahead, no way to escape from the abuse, no way to escape from the mistreatment? Would her voice be like that? In this story, God's response to Hagar and Ishmael serve as somewhat of a contrast to Sarai and Abram's responses. God helped them to survive, helped Hagar and Ishmael to survive, and help Hagar's future generations to thrive. When Hagar met God in the desert, she named this God El Roy, meaning God sees, God hears. She even named Ishmael after this experience. And also the well, the well's name was the well of the God who cares, who sees me. God did not see her as little or insignificant like Sarai did. God, often represented through an angel, did hear the cries of Hagar and Ishmael. God did care. God reassured her that her son would be the father of a great nation also. God cared for the oppressed, the marginalized, rejected, and outcast. Although God did hear Hagar's cries and reassured her, God didn't actually liberate her from slavery in this story. And that's what, part of what makes this story so hard to read and interpret. That's why this story has been a text of terror and it has been used against people of color and, people of, and slaves throughout the years. But God did hear her and give her tools to survive amidst the forces of oppression that threatened to rob her of her worth and of her life. God did find a way to help her regain some of her dignity from some of the ways that others had dehumanized her. God made promises to her and her ancestors that mirrored those of the Israelites. And God quenched their, throat, their thirst, a thirst in the wilderness, a wilderness like the desert. There's nothing more satisfying than cool water for people who have traveled many miles in the hot, dry desert. God gave them water and strength and perseverance to continue on the journey and to fight. And God prevented Ishmael from having to live under slavery anymore, that they could live in the wilderness instead. So although God did not deliver Hagar from slavery herself, God did deliver Ishmael from having to live life as a slave. Feminist writer Dolores Williams talks about a survivalist theology rather than a liberational theology, that sometimes God doesn't liberate fully but helps people to survive instead. God never fully liberated Hagar from being a slave. Even after living out in the wilderness for many years, after Sarah died, she had to return to Abraham. But God did give Hagar the tools she needed to survive amidst the many forces that did not want her to live, that did not want her to survive. Dolores Williams wrote um, in her interpretation of the scripture that God is neither concerned with 
nor involved in liberation, but instead wants Hagar to secure her and her child's well-being by using the resources, using the resources from Abram's wealth. It may seem like Hagar is acquiescing in returning to Sarai, but it's actually a strategic move to secure her own son's inheritance, her own son's future. God does promise them survival and nationhood. God promised to help them to make a better life in a very hostile environment, in a hostile world. And God helped Ishmael to escape from this life of slavery. With the story of Hagar, we see both systemic levels of hate and oppression, like the, the system of slavery and racism, and we also see quite cool, cruel, oppressive actions from both Sarai and Abram. Sarah and Abram weren't only complicit in the systems of slavery and racism, they actively participated in and benefited from them. They had a lot of privilege and they had a lot of power. They were walking in darkness, ignorance of their own abusive ways. In our reading from 1 John, the author talks a lot about this contrast between darkness and light. The letter implies that if we have any hate towards one another, we are actually walking in darkness rather than the light, even if we think we're walking in the light. Sometimes hate simply means participating in these systems of oppression, these hateful systems, whether we are aware of feeling an actual emotion of hate or not. The darkness is the blinders that those of us with privilege have the ways that we don't recognize our own privilege and complicity in these systemic issues, our own ignorance around that. Even if we don't explicitly participate in these acts of abuse and racism, we are complicit in the systems that perpetuate them. Scholar Jamie Reeves, who I mentioned before, she challenges white people to recognize that because of our privilege, we have often, more often been in the role of Sarai and Abram than Hagar. Although it could be said that Sarah is a victim of patriarchy herself, which is true, Sarah plays the role of the oppressor in many ways in this story. Sarah uses her power and her privilege to abuse and deepen injustices against Hagar. The story of Sarai and Hagar resonates in many ways with what Ghislaine Kinwani wrote as a person of color. This is what she wrote. And she's a um, British African-American, or sorry, uh, a woman of color who lives in Britain, um, who is um, an activist, very involved activist over there. This is what she wrote. I am scared of white women. I am not scared of white women for I believe they are monsters or necessarily more dangerous or violent than any other group of women or human beings. I don't believe so. I am scared of white women as a group for what they can do to me and get away with. I am scared of what society allows white women to do to black women and to other women of color without ever being held to account without losing an ounce of that socially presumed innocence or suffer any dent in the credibility of their sisterhood claims. And in truth, I'm scared because in this white patriarchal society, it is a white woman, it is white women who have inflicted the most harm into me. This story is 
although it's not in the lectionary, I find it a great story to read around Lent every year. Um, In fact, many Jews read this story every year leading up to Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. It's sort of their own um, time of repentance and atonement to repent of their their sins from the past year and to look forward and to um, think about what it means to do better in the coming year. So maybe this story is something that we Christians need to start reading every year as well as a reminder to us and our our sins, our participation in some of these societal sins. Hagar's story during this Lenten season is a call to those of us with privilege, those of us who have been more like the Sarahs and the Abrahams and the Hagars, those of us with lighter skin, whether we identify as female or male or non-binary. It's a sign of privilege to give, have a Lenten give-up list to begin with, if you really think about it. A Lenten give-up list That sounds a lot like a New Year's resolution. This is a sign of privilege. Our Lenten journey then is to give up our lack of awareness about our participation in systemic injustices. It should be a giving up of our blinders and our ignorance. It is to try to unlearn and to try to give up the often nuanced and subtle ways we continue to harm and oppress the Hagars of today. So some examples of that, Um, in many ways, gentrification is a lot like the recasting out of Hagar. It's the casting out of Hagar's in in order for our own personal gain. Or the story is a little bit like the silencing of voices from the margins, the voices that threaten us and our privilege, that threaten our status quo. Or it's like how we as a country send people back into the wilderness to survive without hardly any food or water, because we feel that they threaten our home or our country. It's always easier to cast those folks out than to stand in solidarity with them, to hear their perspective. Instead, we need to highlight their voices, their stories, and work for justice, not speaking for them, but letting them be the authorities of their own stories. Our true Lenten journey, then, is to understand and learn from Hagar's story. It is to remember that the call of Lent can never be solely a repentance of individual practices, can never be solely an individualistic repentance. But repentance must always be a holistic repentance. It must be a repentance of our participation in these systems and and any baggage that we carry with us that contributes to these oppressions. So our baggage could be, for example, our own defensiveness that may arise when someone calls us out on our participation in racism. But Lent offers us a beautiful opportunity. It's a time to look inward for critical self-reflection. It's a time to go outside of our comfort zones and to continue to learn and to grow and continue to be challenged by others, especially, um, in order to grow. And it's a beautiful opportunity to pursue justice more intently. We should do this year-round, of course. But it's good to have this reminder each time this year. And the good news is that God gives us this time to reset every year, to look ahead at the coming year and how we want to challenge ourselves, the ways that we need to repent, the ways that we are contributing and participating in these systemic injustices. 
And although in our Christian tradition, Lent is not the beginning of the church calendar, I think it's a great time for a reset. It's a great time to take that self-evaluation time and look forward for the next year. So friends, let us continue on our Lenten journey as we pursue Christ's call for justice together. Let us continue to enlighten ourselves about our own layers of darkness and our own complicity in these systems. And let us walk on together in the light of Christ. Amen.